Hey, welcome to In The Shift, a podcast for when life and faith go off script. My name is Michael Frost. And welcome in, welcome in. I hope you're well, I really do. We're still in lockdown here, <laughs> living our best lives. My hair is getting sort of long and tufty. Uh, my beard is getting, my beard is sort of getting sort of progressively wider as well as long, and that's concerning. Um, you know, things are escalating over time, aren't they, a little bit? All of those carbs I've been using to deal with my emotions, that's not thats not paying off in, in terms of um, me being able to fit all of my clothes. You know, all of these things are unfolding for us, aren't they, uh, for those in lockdown, for those in parts of the world who had this last year while we were all here in New Zealand laughing into our cups of tea, I suppose, uh, whiskey, um, about how we were doing so well. Well, you know, bless you. But here we are struggling through a, a pretty long lockdown at the moment. Uh, we are coming up. It's going to be Guy Fawkes soon. When I'm recording this, uh, it's, it's going to be Guy Fawkes soon here in New Zealand. And if you're not from, I guess, New Zealand or England or sort of some part of the Commonwealth, you may not know what Guy Fawkes is really, but it's, it's an odd sort of um, event, festival, uh, celebration, perhaps, where we so we we lit off fireworks, um, and in our backyards, generally, uh, and and it's in acknowledgement of uh, a plot by an ancestor of mine, actually Guy Fawkes, who was a part of a Catholic plot to blow up the King of England uh, because they were wanting to bring back the Catholic situation and and get rid of this Protestant situation. So, you know, it's a, it's a weird old thing that sort of developed over time into, you know, the, the gunpowder plot uh, was discovered, wasn't carried out. And so to celebrate this, uh, they began to uh, light bonfires, burn effigies of, of uh, enemies, Guy Fawkes, for example, and later on the Pope and so on. Uh, and then we've turned that into sort of a merry uh, fireworks festival to celebrate with our children. So it's, you know... Uh, a sort of a commemoration of religious conflict wrapped up in beautiful golden fountains. Uh, it's a bit strange, uh, but what it does mean is that during this recording, it's very possible there'll be some random ex- uh, fireworks going off around me, uh, and they might set off the dogs uh, in the neighbourhood. So as you listen to this, if you hear uh, random explosions, don't worry, I'm okay, uh, and you're okay. And if you hear dogs barking, they're not okay. Uh, but let that just be a reminder to you as we talk about important issues on this podcast that religious conflict is a real and lasting thing, uh, but sometimes it can result in happy festivals in a few hundred years' time. So there we go. Um, <laughs> I have had well, it's sort of a, a very strange and unusual last week or two. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I was talking with a, uh, with a friend and they had mentioned a colleague of theirs who was um, reluctant to get a COVID vaccine? Now I'm daring to tread into COVID vaccine territory in this in this in this very moment. So, you know, um, if that gets you riled up, just take a deep breath, keep calm, and carry on, as the Brits would say. Uh, and and so I um I had been having this conversation and they had a colleague who was a bit reluctant and I said, oh, you can get them to talk to me if you if, if they want. Uh, I've got a biomedical science background. I worked in for a company that was involved in vaccine development uh, many, many years ago now when I was a younger man. Um, and then I've gone on to do some theology stuff, obviously, a little bit here and there, like a PhD and so on. Uh, and, and so I've got, you know, some 
um, ways, I think, of speaking about the faith side of that conversation if people are feeling a bit nervous from that perspective and some people feel like it's the mark of the beast or all these sort of interesting uh, Christian-ish ideas that are circulating on online. So I just sort of said that and they, they didn't know that about me and they were surprised. And I thought on the back of that, oh, maybe I should um, – Maybe I've got something I could just kind of put out there on, on my social medias. Now, if you, if you listen along to the podcast, you'll know I reference my relatively poor attempts at social media that I do. Uh, I'm not savvy on it. And, uh, and I struggle with the patience for it generally. And yet I thought oh, I, could, I could jot down a few thoughts, stick them out there for, you know, my friends. And if they've got some friends that might be helpful for them, that's cool. Anyway, I did not sort of anticipate what would happen, which is that I sort of watched the thing. I, I posted it out. I hadn't take you know I hadn't um, carefully crafted every word because I was like it'll just sort of go out and 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 my friends will see it and, and if they want to share it with a, with a friend of theirs then that's cool so I, I wasn't sort of too overly pedantic about how I said everything in it uh, and then it sort of it just sort of took off um, I guess to in, in a in a you know in a small way I'm not I'm not a like I say I'm not a person who's used to having thousands and thousands of engagements with a social media post that's just not my life and uh, and so I, I just wasn't expecting it I didn't see it coming and it just spread and spread and spread and, and in New Zealand in particular uh, spread a long way and uh, and thousands of times and I started getting hundreds of comments on my post and hundreds of direct messages talking to me about all sorts, all manner of things. Gosh, it was, a, well, an interesting time. Uh, that was totally unexpected. And for, look, an introvert like myself, a little bit overwhelming. And I did find myself thinking a few things. One was, gosh, there are people in the world who do this on purpose. They put like controversial things online and enjoy this. Whereas I was like, oh my gosh, I was just lying awake at night, staring at the ceiling, wondering how I was going to deal with what I'd got myself into. Anyway, um, there are a few things that kind of struck me about it. Uh, you know, uh, I I started to read all of these comments and messages that people were sending me. And I think what we're very tempted to do so often, and we've talked about a, this a bit over the course of the last couple of years on In The Shift, is our tendency to, to work in binaries, to put people into this camp or that camp. And what I recognized as I engaged with all of these people is it's just how much spread across the spectrum there was about how many people were really encouraging and supportive and grateful, um, how for some people it was incredibly helpful, and then how for others they had genuine questions and concerns, or they'd read stuff and they were worried, um, they didn't know what to believe, they didn't know who to trust, you know, all of that kind of stuff. And then there was, you know, the real extreme end at the other side where people were were sharing all sorts of things, which were just patently untrue, um, and and getting stirred up about all of that. And, you know, I've never really had to sort of be a, a, a blocker on the social medias, that's not, I've never really attracted enough attention to have to block people before, but I had to kind of figure out how to do that and people were sending me, you know, relatively um, colourful messages, <laughs> which again, conflict-averse uh, introvert was like, ha, ah, ah. ha. Uh, but what I suppose the whole experience made me think about, well, it made me think about a few things and, and some stuff that I want to thread into Today's conversation, and you'll know if you've been listening, especially to these last two or three episodes in the podcast, um, I've been looking back over the course of the last 50 or so episodes and uh, where the conversations have kind of come and gone and, and what the dominant themes have been in those conversations, as well as the many communications that I've had with people like you listening along who send me emails and messages and, and so on. And trying to discern some of the themes going on in these conversations that we're having, um, and in particular to do so in, in relation to some of the ongoing problems and, and possibilities of, of Christian faith. 
A couple of episodes ago, I spoke about the contemporary church growth culture, the unhealthy drive toward the businessification, if that can be a word, of the church. And I've instead and, and suggested there that, that at its best, Christianity provides resources for us to inhabit authenticity and vulnerability and honesty. And that's something that our modern culture, religious or not actually, often devalues. Uh, and so there's both a both a problem here in terms of this corporatization, uh, businessification, businessification, growth mentality, capital, capitalism, um, oriented Christianity. Uh, but there's also possibilities here toward authenticity and vulnerability. Uh, and in the last episode, I spoke about some of the narcissistic shape of many modern institutions, and in particular, faith-based institutions and churches, and how instead of narcissism and, and self-centeredness and projection of blame outwards, uh, including onto those who are victims of, of, of suffering at the hands of those very institutions, instead of that, Christian faith should compel a listening to and a prioritizing of and a centering of those who have suffered, who have been victims, and so on. Uh, in fact, the whole Christian tradition is grounded in the stories from the underside of power in that sense, um, which has been a theme right throughout the podcast. So, Back to this vaccination post, the whole experience of that and the kind of interactions I had there really highlighted to me some of the other things that I've seen emerging in the course of our um, conversations over the last two or three years uh, and made me as well think about another conversation I had last week with someone. And that's really about the current moment globally for the church, especially in the West perhaps, but how looking at events and the way that they've unfolded, we've spoken about you know the, the Trump years, and the kind of stuff that's happening in the US at the moment and white evangelicalism there. We've experienced, I don't think, the same degrees of wildness in New Zealand as we've seen there, but even at the moment, things are heating up somewhat. Um, and and sort of people embracing authoritarianism, people embracing um, conspiracies, uh, stuff like this. You know, this is kind of a failure of the church. It's a failure of what classically the church would call discipleship, right? Which is, it, it's really the fruit that's being born here by the evangelical church, uh, the white evangelical church in particular, is, um, is showing that there's something deeply troubling about the framework of faith itself that's sitting underneath this. And, you know, I think there are lots of things within that that we could explore and that we have explored along the way. One is bad eschatology, and we've, we've touched on that uh, earlier this year and talking about, you know, the mark of the beast is not the end of the world. Uh, you know, there, so that's that's one aspect of, of what's going on here and feeding into some of these um, troubling outcomes for, for Christians at the moment. Uh, one is a distrust of the world, uh, and I want to talk a little bit about that today. There's also, along with that, then some rejection of science, another theme that we've explored. Uh, and, and these are all connected to the thing I really want to zero in on in this episode, and that's this idea that many Christians have that they are in on something special, real, and true, that they see the truth about the world, and often a truth that no one else sees, or at least um, no one else outside of the church sees. Uh, and in many respects, if that's the shape of faith, then that shape of it, if you like, if you think about that kind of narrative arc, that narrative arc, that shape, is the same as the kind of narrative arc of conspiracy theories and actually kind of makes Christians ripe, I think, for this kind of thing. And even more so, I, I think there are implications beyond the more extreme conspiracy type stuff that I think um, we are seeing the fruit um, that is produced in a number of different ways, not just 
wild conspiracy theories, but in a number of different ways. So in this, the episode 51 of the podcast, I want to talk about this idea of Christianity as being a truth that the church knows that the world doesn't. What makes that kind of framework, that narrative arc appealing and alluring, but also why it's a problem. And I think actually a misunderstanding of Christian faith and some alternative ways of thinking about how Christianity might offer us something very much needed in this present day if we can allow ourselves to open up and see it. So the longest introduction I think I've ever done on In The Shift. This is episode 51. Let's get into it. So I had made this post, right, on vaccinations and started hearing all of these conspiracy theories. And then um, as a way of escapism, and this is what I do sometimes, and if you think less of me because of this, then uh, then look, I'm willing to, to take the hit on this one. Maybe you'll think more of me. I don't know. It depends on the kind of person you are. But I like to escape with some movies that are not particularly thoughtful sometimes. Movies and books. I love reading fantasy I love watching kind of slightly mindless film sometimes. And I thought, you know what would be a great little escape? Um, you know, my, my partner had had Rufus out and about, and so I had just a couple of hours to just, and I haven't had many of those hours in the last few months, um, to just kind of blob on the couch and watch something ridiculous. So I watched Godzilla versus Kong. And this was my escape from all of the conspiracy people that I was having to engage with online. Uh, and Godzilla versus Kong, you know, very ridiculous. Um, but, um, but what sort of made me laugh was that one of the big premises of the film was that there was this guy who ran a conspiracy um, theory radio show that in this case had actually uncovered the truth about this big corporation and what it was doing with, you know, the Godzilla Kong situation. Look, I won't go into all the details of the plot. That's not really important. But it just kind of made me laugh because here I was trying to have a little escape from from conspiracy theories and I was watching a film uh, that was filled with sort of the validation of the conspiracy theorist. And then I just sort of realized, I reflected on that, just the degree to which actually in pop culture, this is not just a Christian kind of thing, but in the West, our pop culture um, phenomenon, lots of movies, lots of films, are grounded in this thing of, oh, there's the person who believed the thing no one else would believe and here's the evil, powerful corporations and the evil, powerful overlords who never let you um, follow that little rabbit warren or see where that goes and are always trying to snuff out the truth. Um, But there's always someone who's not believed, you know, not always, but obviously in in a lot of these um, stories and the arc of these stories is someone who's not believed but who kind of, who really knows and is trying to tell people and, and you know, the thing is that there are lots of reasons to be suspicious of power. In fact, that itself has been one of the themes of the podcast, that, um, that powerful people often abuse that power, that capitalism <laughs> uh, as well as power, you know, those, those things give us plenty of cause for concern and suspicion of, of powerful entities in the world. Uh, and, and then what we do is we, we feed those um, suspicions and we can either feed those suspicions in really healthy and life-giving ways, which is to say, what are some alternative narratives that can shape a more ethical and value-based approach to human flourishing? Or we can feed them in, in really unhealthy ways, which is to become suspicious of anyone who says anything that's grounded in any kind of sense and instead to come up with kind of fantastical um, stories and ideas about what might really be going on. 
Um, and of course, occasionally one of those stories might actually turn out to be sort of true, you know. Um, but oftentimes, actually, the, oftentimes the, the conspiracies are not really all that hidden. You know, you don't have to look very far to, uh, to realise that there's a lot of rich, powerful people taking advantage of capitalism in, in the current economic moment to make themselves rich on the backs of others. You know, I don't have to believe in, in lizard people to, um, to see that, right? Um, but that kind of shape, that narrative arc is very appealing to us. And so it's appealing in pop culture. It's appealing in Godzilla versus Kong. It's appealing in lots and lots of different stories that we tell. Um, and this has also, you know, led me to think about the language of modern Christianity itself. Um, and, and if you think about some of the language, and it depends maybe on your experience of, of Christianity, but in particular kind of evangelical, charismatic, Pentecostal Christianity that I'm more familiar with, you know, I hear these kinds of refrains and, and themes a lot. And I certainly did when I was, you know, a, a younger man as well. Uh, you know, there's this, there's this idea that I have the truth that other people outside of the church don't have. Um, that doesn't necessarily make me better than them. But it means I see something that they don't. I know something that they don't. I know how things really are. I know what the truth really is. And they're blind to it. Uh, I was blind, but now I see, right? And they need to see too. Um, so that's one way of thinking about how people consider their faith. And and so then the language of faith, you know, in, in the kind of Pentecostalism that, that I've experienced in the past that layers on top of that is then, so don't believe what the evidence is telling you. Don't believe what you see or hear. We touched on this, you know, one of the very, very early um, episodes in the podcast um, when, when honesty confronts the truth. Uh, this, this mentality of don't believe what you see or hear because you've got to have faith and faith in the unseen. Um, so you've got, you know, I am in on this truth that other people don't know. Um, that truth tells me then that I shouldn't believe what I see or hear, but instead have faith in these in these unseen truths that others won't believe. Uh, people need to know what I know, but many of them won't believe it because, well, for all sorts of reasons, maybe they're deceived by the devil. Maybe they're simply blind to the truth. Uh, they need it to be revealed to them and so on. So, you know, you've got the truth, be confident and courageous in that, don't listen to the world who's deceived and in darkness, right? So that, I know that's not everything about Christian faith, modern Christian faith. It's certainly not. And, and, you know, I'm making some big sweeping generalizations here for sake of time and for sake of making the point I want to make. <laughs> but, um, but even though there's a lot more to contemporary Christianity than that, those threads are very much woven and reinforced within there. And I think then that as a part of the exhilaration and energy that is provided in, in, in those forms of Christian faith, it's, it's kind of, um, it's alluring and, and intoxicating and exhilarating to be in on this thing that other people don't see, not because they don't see it, um, but because you have the truth and isn't that amazing and isn't that exciting, right? I mean, lots of religions probably feel, you know, religious folk from all different religious traditions feel a bit like this at times. Um, but I think the shape of some religious traditions really doubles down on that feeling compared to others. And I think, you know, contemporary, contemporary kind of white evangelicalism, Pentecostal charismatic Christianity very much 
does that. And the kind of um, energy and the potency to this idea that we are in on the truth here. We've got it. And all we need to do is to get it to the world and then they'll have it too. Uh, but many of them won't believe us, but we're going to keep trying to convince them of this thing that they that they won't believe. And they'll try to tell us all sorts of things. Um, maybe they'll try and tell us that, you know, evolution, or maybe they'll try and tell us that the, the Big Bang, or maybe they'll try and tell us this and that and the other. But we know the real truth about things, you know. Um, and, and it's exciting to be in on something like that. It's, it, it gives adrenaline. Um, and I think sometimes um, contemporary worship feeds off that kind of energy. You know, I, I think about some of the songs that I used to sing, and some of them are just bangers, you know, some of them are just great tunes that make you feel awesome when you sing them. <laughs> and, you feel, and you're singing them with a bunch of other people, and there's just something kind of um, sociological going on there. There's something experiential. There's something... Uh, physiological and psychological going on in that moment that just makes you feel amazing. Um, the bodies start to move, you know, the <laughs> the chorus, oh, and when you hit the bridge, oh, how about that bridge? Um, you know, and the hands go up and, you know, there, there's something kind of exhilarating just about the embodied experience of it itself. Um, but, but there's also, I think, uh, upon reflection, this thread of exhilaration that comes from a celebrating the truth that you have, um, you know, and, and so people start to sing about how God is on their side and and when they begin to sing about the sort of the triumph of, of Jesus and, and this kind of stuff, there's there's an exuberation that comes, I think, partly because of the, that, that shape of, of victory that you see in some of those um, worship lyrics. Uh, and if you're not familiar with those, then it's a very common theme in contemporary Christian worship music to sing about this kind of triumph and victory of God over evil and in, in the story of Jesus and his kind of resurrection is this big victory. Um, but sometimes I think some of the, the sort of the, the potency of, of that excitement and, and exhilaration that you experience when you sing those songs is actually recognizing, oh, I'm, this is the one that I'm following. I'm following this Jesus and this Jesus is the winner. This Jesus is the one who tells us the truth. This Jesus is the one who gives us insight into the way things really are. And I'm in on that. I'm in on that team. Isn't that incredible? Uh, and so worship, uh, although it's many things, can become a part of a celebration of, of that energy. And, um, and, you know, not all of these things are bad in and of themselves, but the layers of these things and the intersection of them together starts to create some interesting dynamics that I think we are seeing uh, the fruit of, as well as some of the other things we've touched on. And I think the last two episodes, narcissism and, uh, and, and the growth machine, you know, both of these all kind of layer together in, in, in creating the, some of the problematic features of, of contemporary Christianity in the West. Uh, and there's some things that, you know, there's some familiarity with, with this, with something called Gnosticism, which is a very broad, generalized term. It's not like there was a, a Gnostic movement. But back in the back in the second, third centuries, um, you know, after after Jesus, uh, we we were in a world deeply shaped by, by Greco-Roman philosophy uh, and uh, Platonism and Neoplatonism uh, and... And one of the features of that kind of Neoplatonism was that, you know, the material world is not the real. The real is the immaterial. The real is the, is the ideal. The real is the non-physical idea of something rather than the physical materiality of it. Um, and we've touched on this in other podcast episodes and some of the problems that emerge because of that. Um, but what Gnosticism was, was a real um, extension of that idea 
to really say then that Gnostics were those who kind of had secret knowledge. Gnostics were the ones who had access to that realm of insight and truth that other people didn't have. And it kind of fed this sense of mysterious, magical truths and insights that the unenlightened couldn't see. And I, and I feel like some aspects of contemporary um, Christianity in the West uh, sound a little bit like that kind of ancient Gnosticism, a very broad category in the ancient world to try and describe a number of different movements and, and, and there's a lot of nuance there. But, but generally speaking, this idea that there's these sort of truths to be seen that we can see that others can't see, um, I think there's some problems with that and I want to touch on what they might be. And the first um, is arrogance. <laughs> it's a pretty straight up one. The first problem with this is an, is an arrogance. It's this arrogance that says, I'm right. It's an arrogance that says, we have the truth. It's an arrogance that says, we know the way things really are. And, uh, and certainly Christians are not the only ones with that. But it, I guess as someone from the Christian tradition, uh, Christians are my target audience here in terms of my critique. Um, and I can do that because I'm from that tradition. Uh, so yeah, plenty of other places in the world to find arrogance. But this is a place within, within Christian uh, community, I think, that, that we see arrogance fed by the shape, the narrative arc of, of, of Christian faith. And uh, in fact, you know, this is, this is in fact, you know, my, my problem, if you like, with, with, with non-evangelical forms of spirituality that emphasize enlightenment. Um, and that's not to say that sometimes people don't have experiences of, of that, that feel like enlightenment in their lives. Uh, and I know people in mysticism talk a lot about enlightenment. Uh, and we mentioned mysticism a, a few episodes ago in our multiple paths of deconstruction. But um, sometimes people who talk about being enlightened can start to sound very much like arrogant evangelical Christians. Uh, so, you know, don't be offended by that. But um, sometimes that can happen. When we use, because enlightenment and, and unenlightenment or, you know, not enlightened and enlightened, those are very binary categories. And it's very easy if you're the enlightened one when someone says something uh, that maybe uh, critiques your position or offers a different point of view is to say, well, yes, you would see that, but, you know, you haven't hit enlightenment yet. Um, you haven't experienced enlightenment yet. And that's why you're where you are. And, and I have some issue with that kind of arrogance that we see, uh, not only in, 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 in that form of spirituality, but it does pop up there. Because it's a temptation of humankind, right? To find something that we love and then to turn it into a way to make us the best. Uh, so uh, my hope is that Christianity is, is a faith tradition, has resources to help us undo that tendency within the human condition. But unfortunately in this case, I think this idea that we're in on the truth and that we've got the truth um, feeds a kind of arrogance. And that arrogance means you end up having blind spots. That arrogance means um, you end up not seeing the ways in which you are behaving poorly. That arrogance stops you from seeing the ways in which your beliefs are unhealthy and unhelpful to people. That arrogance stops you from hearing from those outside of your circle of worldview uh, to learn something. Uh, it leads to a distrust of the world out there because you're the ones with the truth in here and they're the ones without the truth out there. And so, yeah, cool, they might have some nice things to say from time to time, but they don't really 
believe God's word or they don't know God like you do. You know, all sorts of ways of of talking about and something I've mentioned again recently, that church world binary that feeds a distrust of the world. And that arrogance put together with that distrust of the world leads to a, a real lack of openness to knowledge and to truth and to insights from science, which we've obviously seen, but also insights from other religious traditions, insights from experiences that are different from our own, insights from other ethnic and cultural contexts that would give us potentially some real, you know, healthy <laughs> corrections on things. But but when we when we have that kind of arrogance and that distrust of the world because we've got the truth in here, then, then we cultivate really a lack of openness and that, I think, damages us over time. And when that, the more that happens, the more kind of sectarian or even cultish something starts to become, right? So you can have the, all of this is on a spectrum. Same with the narcissism we discussed <laughs> last time. Uh, but the more you feed it, the more you feed the narcissism, the more you feed the arrogance, the more you feed the we know the truth and others don't, uh, the more you feed a distrust of the world, then the less open you become to hearing um, reflective feedback from outside of you, the less open you become to hearing truth and knowledge and insights from elsewhere. And the more you start to double down on your own way of seeing things and, you know, it becomes the ultimate echo chamber that can, you know, at its worst end up in very, very harmful and scary places. Um, I think one of the other things, and this is another scary kind of layer to add to this, is that it makes it makes us susceptible to authoritarian truth tellers. So when we've got that kind of we're in this thing here and we've we've got this truth that we believe that the world doesn't understand, then you're really, I think, often drawn to, to two kinds of truth tellers, authoritarian truth tellers. Uh, one is that who might have who seems to have real special insights. So the one who picks up the Bible and seems to draw things out of it. That, boy, I never would have got that from that text. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> and I remember thinking that as a young man when I'd hear people, I'd be like, I never would have got that out of that passage. Uh, but it's not because they'd uh, gone and studied that passage uh, really well, <laughs> and were unfolding a context that that I not that I didn't know, and, and were helping me to see. You know, they were just um, well, for want of a better term sort of making things up really about it. Uh, but it sounded spectacular. Um, and so the kind of charismatic, um, prophetic, uh, again, not not dissing all of those charismatic and prophetic people, but sometimes there is a real attraction towards those authoritarian truth-tellers who are pulling these special, insightful, prophetic messages out of these texts and giving them to us. So, And then that makes us very reliant on them because when you, when you start to say, I never would have got that out of there. Isn't it amazing the things that they can see here and the things that they're hearing from God and the things that they're telling us? Isn't that extraordinary? then you come to doubt not just the world out there, but you even come to doubt yourself and put all of your trust in that one truth teller and that one authoritarian figure and you attach yourself to them. So that's a problem. And it also, we might say, makes you susceptible to authoritarian truth tellers outside of the church. Uh, <coughs> Trump. Uh, so um, that's the one kind of truth teller. And the other kind of related to that are those who can just make you feel reassured and confident about your way of seeing the world who are able to, with real conviction and confidence, tell you that, yes, you're on the right team. Yes, your way of seeing the world is correct. And just keep doubling down on that, no matter what anybody says. And that makes you feel good, doesn't it? And, you know, as, a, as someone who, who still teaches theology, I'm uh, <laughs> not blacklisted everywhere yet, um, <laughs> Uh, the um, 
you know, I, I still teach theology and, and when students, especially when they come in at the beginning of their study, they, um, they often want, they, their expectation of me is often that they're going to come in and I'm going to tell them impressive and amazing details <laughs> about why what they already think is correct. They are, they are not expecting me to challenge the things that they believe. Not really. They are expecting me to give impressive reasons for the things they already believe. And so I have to kind of scaffold them through. I have to help them through that journey of saying, you know what, there are going to be some things I say to you that you haven't heard before, that you don't agree with, that are going to be a challenge to your worldview. And that's okay. That's part of the journey, right? So um, so it's not just about somebody getting up there and telling you, yes, everything you believe is right and you're awesome and go into the world and be confident that you'll never be wrong again. <laughs> um, so, so, so the conspiracy stuff that we, that we started talking about, you know, even some of the, the anti-vaccine conspiracies, and I'm not talking about people with genuine questions or concerns about valid things, but I am talking about uh, a lot of the conspiracy language around, around our current moment um, is just one example of the fruit of this narrative shape. Uh, and and as I said, I think it feeds into the narcissism we spoke about in the last episode. Um, once you think you've got the insight, you see things how they really are and other people don't, so you become blind to people's pain, you become blind to their experiences. And we've seen that, you know. Sometimes we've seen it in relation to people in the LGBTQI community, for example, or we've seen it in the church um, in relation to women or to whoever sits outside the kind of framework of truth that you've built, the framework of authority that you've built. And this allows you to sort of nod your head knowingly whenever anyone challenges the system and sort of be like, yeah, well, of course you would say that because you don't really see the way things are. So <laughs> as is often the case, I spend much more time talking about the problem than I do the alternative, but I think that's probably because of the phase of life and, and, and journey we're all in as we're trying to pull something apart so that we can see if there's anything worth putting back together on the other side. Um, so I do want to offer, I think, you know, in terms of Christian faith, what might be some alternative ways of thinking about that narrative shape, if you like. Um, you know, perhaps it's no surprise to you if you've been listening along to the podcast for a while, but I think that the whole kind of um, special truth, insight kind of shape of that version of faith that I've just been talking about, I, I, I just don't agree with that as being the predominant way of understanding Christian faith. You know, it's predicated on some theological beliefs, really, that see the point of faith as believing the right things so that you can be saved. And that means that once I'm saved, I need to get other people to believe the same right things as I believe so that they can be saved too. You know, I think there's a problematic shape to that. Uh, so here's a few helpful things, perhaps. I hope they're helpful. The times we, yes, there are times in Scripture that faith in Christ is seen as a resistance against the powerful and dominant narratives of empire. Um, but it must be remembered that this is often from those who are enduring real, genuine suffering and persecution. And I don't mean like white evangelical Western imagined persecution. I mean being ruled over by a violent empire, being, being crushed, being killed, being impoverished, uh, being persecuted for all sorts of things, including your faith, your ethnicity, your, you know, all of that. I mean, being fed to the lions, you know. In that context, yes, this idea that the powerful and violent are telling us the way things are, but there's a different way to be. Um, there's a different kind of truth to see. Yeah, I think there's some, there's some, there's some real strength and potency in that. Um, 
But this was not kind of a secret knowledge that makes us saved and, and, them, and them sort of not. Um, in fact, it was, a, it was really the secret knowledge. Here was the secret knowledge, if you like. It's that the way of self-giving love is ultimately more powerful. It wasn't that our enemies are lizard people <laughs> or that the vaccine is going to be the mark of the beast. You know, it wasn't that kind of thing. It was the, the secret truth that we know is that the way of self-giving love is ultimately the most powerful thing that there is, no matter what people tell us, right? So there is, there is a bit of that in the text, but, it, but it's not designed to feed wild paranoia and suspicion and conspiracy. It's designed to offer an alternative um, narrative around what true power really looks like and that that's shaped by the way of the cross rather than um, the way of the empire. And so that's not a justification for then sort of building a whole faith system on this idea that we sort of have this, this knowledge and truth that others don't have and to let that shape everything about our faith in what is, for many of us, quite a different context. Uh, you know, instead, I think in, in our context, or at least in mine, the kind of resources we need to draw on in our Christian faith could, could be of real help to us in this present moment. So instead of salvation being seen as, you know, believing the right things that make us in, Instead of salvation being that kind of idea, the challenge here is to, to respond to this idea that Christ actually becomes present to us. The, the, divine, the divine becomes present to us, not in the truths we hold that others can't see or believe, but actually in the lives and the actions we inhabit as they are oriented outward from ourselves toward others with care and compassion and empathy and love. The whole movement is not toward a separatism or even toward a I have the right beliefs that make me saved and in that I need to convince everyone else of. Actually, Jesus often resisted that form of faith, religion, spirituality. Instead, it was, a, you know, instead of this kind of sense of inness and rightness that we have because we've seen the truth, seen the light, know the right things, have the right beliefs. We actually, there's a, there's a lot within this tradition that actually pulls apart this idea that right knowledge makes you in, makes you saved, makes you special. I think, in fact, this is a big reason why Jesus spends most, so much of his time disrupting the categories of in and out. You know, he includes the outsider again and again and again in really real ways for those people, but also in profoundly symbolic ways, in a way that shatters the arrogant insider status of those who are arrogant enough to think they know the way things really are. And he keeps doing it over and over again. And, and, and I think that's important to recognize. Um, it's not to say there's no truth to know, but to say that anytime we're tempted to say we're in because we believe the right things, see the right things, know the right things, well, I think Jesus wants to, well, in Guy Fawkes, in Guy Fawkes, uh, fashion, he wants to blow that up. <laughs> and, um, and instead, orient us toward not, not the truths that we believe that make us in and right, but actually the kinds of lives that we, and practices that we live and embody. You know, there's a parable um, that Jesus shares at one point towards the end of his time. And it's about sheep and goats. And it's a typical kind of first century Jewish 
uh, apocalyptic parable, told with drama and with flair, and it includes symbols like the end of the age and the separating of the sheep and the goats, and the sheep are the good ones and the goats are the bad ones and so on. Now, it's not meant to be a literal story about dividing up people into heaven and hell sometime in the future. It's a very Jewish way in the first century of telling a story actually about the present, about the here and now, and about the way God sees things. And what Jesus says in this story is that the sheep are the ones who get to be in, if you like, will not be the ones who knew the things that others didn't know, who believed the truths that others didn't believe, won't be the ones who said the right prayer or who, you know, who signed the right statement of faith, who believed the correct ideas, uh, won't be the ones who rejected the evils of the world and distrusted everybody. It'll be the ones who looked after the hungry, the thirsty, the poor, those in prison, those in pain, those who are suffering. And sometimes, Jesus says, they won't even know they were doing it for God. They'll be surprised to find that out. That'll be a surprise to them. And this kind of story, this kind of parable that Jesus tells here, this should totally mess up our thoughts that Christianity can be defined by believing the right things. When we look after those in pain, Jesus says, you're actually meeting God in that place. God, the divine, is found uh, not in the sky and not in your right beliefs. God is found in the face of the prisoner, the person in poverty, the person who is suffering, the person who needs kindness and compassion and empathy and real tangible help. That is where the divine is found. And I feel like if Christian faith could reclaim the centrality of these practices rather than some kind of Gnostic belief in truths no one else can see, then not only would it protect us against the kind of conspiracy fruit that we're seeing at the moment, but I think it might also do some real good in the world. And if that does happen, I think, you know, I mean, it does It does happen in the world. I'm not saying this doesn't happen. Uh, and, and in fact, I think Christianity is at its best when this is the way it's outworked. And that is a challenge to me as much as it is to anyone. So that's where we're going to leave it for today. Thanks as always to Reese Michel for his audiological manipulation of this sound into your ears. Until next time. <laughs>